Good, good morning. So this morning we are going to be looking at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. Um, before I actually get to that, we're also going to read from a passage from the book of Exodus and a, a verse from Jeremiah. So let me start with Exodus 34. And it says, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron, all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him. And then in Jeremiah 31, 33, it says, For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And now going to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 18. Are we beginning again to commend ourselves? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that your letter from Christ delivered with us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory had, has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory." Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who had put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. 
For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is a spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Father, we ask that you would be with us as we listen to your word, Father, that you would open the scriptures to our understanding in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Apostle Paul had founded the church in Corinth about A.D. 50. And you can read about the ministry where he began this church in Corinth in the book of Acts, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. Now, the city of Corinth was originally a Greek city, but it was destroyed in 146 B.C. And then it was rebuilt as a Roman city in 44 B.C. Now, Corinth had become a large city and many, but not all of its citizens had become very wealthy. Corinth had a Jewish population, but was primarily inhabited by Gentiles who worshipped many pagan gods. Uh, some scholars have said that Corinth was a combination of New York City, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas. You know, it was an important crossroads. There was a lot going on there. Now, Paul at first presented the gospel to the Jews, and some did come to believe. But then he was ejected from the synagogue, and so he began to focus his work on preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. The city of Corinth was not necessarily more sinful than any other Gentile city of the world in this time period, but they did accommodate much sin in their midst and this bled into the church. Now, Paul had a difficult relationship with the church at Corinth, to put it mildly. They misunderstood some of the guidance he had given them. They also willfully ignored and distorted some of the directions and advice he had sent to them. And the church was in crisis. Now, we don't have a copy of a severe letter that Paul had sent to the church. But it almost seems like Paul had almost lost his temper with them. And Paul also had made a surprise visit to the church, which turned out to be very painful to the church and also to him. Now, Paul's hurt and frustration with the church is even evident in this epistle. He wants so much more for them, but also for himself. He was definite, desperate for evident change in their lives. Nevertheless, these difficulties, Paul was, he clearly loved the church at Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians 1.7, he says, our hope for you is unshaken. And although this is a difficult letter, it's it is one of my favorite books in the Bible. This is one of the most personal letters that Paul or any of the apostles has written. He talks of being utterly burdened beyond our strength. He talks of being despairing of life itself. He speaks of affliction and anguish and tears. But he also speaks of triumph in Christ. And he speaks of the God of all comfort. Now, for the last two years of my life, I've 
I've lived in the book of Job chapter 42 and 2 Corinthians chapter 3. In Job, I've been trying to gain some understanding of some of the things that have happened in my life in the past five years. Because the Lord literally, literally turned my world upside down in some ways. I'm still trying to get my bearings. Now, several life-changing circumstances occurred to get me to Denver, and I'm so thankful to God for, for Pastor Matt and Sharon and this church, Grace and Peace, and the kindness and graciousness of this congregation and their support for me in prayer and in more tangible things. But what do these chapters in these books have in common? They both involve coming face to face with God. I'm also thankful that the Lord called me to Denver Rescue Mission in spite of some of the prayers I lift up to God. <laughs> I never thought that I would be the on-site director for an 800-bed, 24-7 shelter during the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic, and then overseeing four shelters with about 1,000 beds. It was especially fun when the health department quarantined me and my staff to home and to work. And now I'm the director of chaplaincy and community care, which means I have five chaplains working with me to provide spiritual and pastoral care for about 7,000 individuals per year in the Denver metro area that we work with, that walk through our doors. And on any given day, over 1,000 people. Not to mention things going on with my family and friends that have major issues going on in their lives. And I'm not exaggerating when I, when I say that there are some days when I'm utterly, utterly burdened beyond my strength. I so often feel so unqualified, so equipped and unprepared for what the Lord has placed in my hands. And as I work with so many people and and I'm tasked with providing spiritual and pastoral care for them. So often it runs through my mind, how do people change? How are people brought into the presence of God? How do we pastor all these people? I'm not worried about any of you, you're all perfect. So. Actually, I'm so grateful that our elders meetings we have to stretch them out to make them last an hour and a half. You know, I've, in other churches I've worked with, four hours is sometimes not enough. So thank God for you, but you're also people. Now, 1 Corinthians 15, 49 reads like this. Just if we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Whenever I read that verse, I think and I feel that I am still so dusty. When will I ever begin to bear the image of the man of heaven? There is a scripture that says, comparing themselves with themselves, they are not wise. I don't need to compare myself to other people. I need to see the image of the man of heaven 
so that I can see his reflection and he can reflect off of me, that I can bear his image. I need to see his glory. I am desperate for God, desperate for his presence. Now, the apostle is having to deal with two major issues in the Corinthian church. First, they are doubting his authority. And secondly, they are questioning the power of the gospel. This very gospel that will change them. And so as we look at verses one through six, we see Paul talking to them. He's saying, are we beginning to commend ourselves? Or do we need letters of recommendation to you or from you? And then he says, you're our letter of recommendation. You're not on a piece of paper. You're written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And he says, you're a letter from Christ delivered by us, but written not with ink, but the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. So he says, do we need letters of recommendation? Now, I'm not an apostle, so I need lots of letters of recommendation. You know, one of them, um, it says this, it says, be it known to all faithful Christians throughout the world by these presents that we have examined and found to be of godly life, sound learning, called and equipped by God to serve the church in the holy order of priesthood. And therefore, according to the form, rites, and customs prescribed, prescribed by the convocation of Anglicans, we did ordain our beloved in Christ, Ernest Rene Palacios. And then it talks about that they laid their hands on me and then at the bottom it has the presiding bishop, Bishop Terence Kelshaw. Now the Anglican Church believes in a form what's called apostolic succession. It means that from the time of the apostles they trace back the lineage of the bishops just to show that he didn't make himself a bishop, but somebody actually commissioned him. And then those bishops, then they, you know, they ordained priests and deacons. But Bishop Kelshaw, who ordained me, um, you know, he made it very clear to me that the way it works is that the succession is faithful men preaching faithfully the doctrine and the scriptures. It's not the men. It's what they carry in their hearts to present. Now, Bishop Kelshaw, you know, his, his succession goes back all the way <clears throat> to the Apostle John. But Paul is asking these people who, he's the one who led them to Christ. He's the one that founded the church. He's saying, do you really need from me a letter of recommendation? Or when I go somewhere to preach, do I need a letter of recommendation from you? He's saying, you're written on my heart. I've been in anguish for you. I've prayed for you. I've cried for you. I've been persecuted for you. 
and have also suffered from you. And he says, it's not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human heart. He said, God has removed the hearts of stone. He's replaced them with hearts of flesh. And he's written his word on their hearts. And he says, this is a confidence that we have in verse four. It says, such is the confidence we have through Christ towards God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God. Who has made us sufficient of ministers of this new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the spirit. Because the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. So he's saying, that is our sufficiency. It is God, by Christ, working with the Holy Spirit that has enabled us to bring this new covenant to you. And he says the letter kills. And what he means by that is that the law calls us to holiness and demands perfection but does not empower us to obey. There's a philosopher named Jeremy Bentham that he talked about something called the panopticon, which in his thinking was, was a prison, a circular prison, and in the middle it had a guard tower and so the people in this multi-storied prison, they could not see into the guard tower, but the guard tower could see into all of their cells. They didn't know when the guard would be looking at them. But the idea was that they were always being observed. Somebody was always looking at them because they didn't know when they were being watched. Now, Tom, close your ears. At the Denver Rescue Mission, you know, when I go to work, I have a key card on all my doors. You know, I, you know, so when I go in in the morning, I have to, you know, scan my key card. I get into my building and I go into my office and um, most of the other buildings, offices that we have, facilities, I scan my card. You know, if I go through security gates, I punch in the, you know, I punch in the code to get in. And sometimes if if a director or somebody is wondering if their staff is actually coming to work, guess what? They can go and pull up a report to see if you've been coming to work and what time you've been coming to work. And of course, none of us have any devices like that on our person. 
your, your cell phones and your cars, they never know what you're doing or where you're going. Those officers, they thought they had this thing here. They didn't realize that there was cameras up here seeing exactly what they were doing. When I ran rehabilitation shelters for men and women in Albuquerque, sometimes I would tell them, I could lock you up in a room and just feed you three times a day for a year, make sure you had the things that you needed to survive. But what would happen when I unlocked the door? Would you be changed? So that's the idea of all of the, it's all coming from the outside to make us behave. As we look at the letter, as we look at the stone tablets, as we look at the law, we read it, we hear it, but does that change this? The law condemns us because we can't follow it. But then Paul says, but the Spirit gives life. He says in verse 7, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, which was fading away, he says, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? So he's saying that as Moses went in before God, you know, he would be face to face with God and we don't know exactly what that means. But in some way, some kind of light began to shine on him and he also gave out that light. But as he came out from God's presence, the people would see that he was shining and they were afraid. What were they afraid of? They were afraid of God. Why were they afraid of God? Because Moses was coming and telling them, this is what God demands. And they were looking at themselves and they were looking at their life and they were thinking, I'm not living like that. I'm not thinking like that. And so, the more Moses came in, came out from God's presence, it made them afraid because the law was condemning them. And Paul actually calls it the ministry of death. And he says, even the ministry of death had glory, even if it was fading away. But he says, won't the ministry of the Spirit, which gives life even more glorious than that? He calls it the ministry of condemnation versus the ministry of righteousness. The fading glory versus the permanent glory. And he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses 
who had put a veil over his face. But he says, but their minds, they were hardened. For to this day, he says, even till now, when they read the Old Testament, a veil remains over their eyes. I remember the first time that a friend of mine showed me a gospel tract, which had some passages of scripture. Now in my house, you know, we were Roman Catholics and we had this beautiful big Roman Catholic Bible on our coffee table, but we were warned, don't open it unless you have a priest right there to to get you through that, to survive that. And he showed me that gospel tract and I read that and, and I wasn't stupid. I knew how to read. I was studying to become an engineer and I could not read it. It made absolutely no sense to me. It was as if I had a veil over my eyes. And I did. So Paul says the veil remains in the old covenant if it has not been taken away. But how is that veil taken away? He says, because only through Christ is it taken away the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that night, at 331 Yucca, July 3rd, 1979, when I met God face to face, the veil was removed. The stone heart was taken out and a heart of flesh was placed here that had God's word written on my heart. And the first thing I did when I went home is I went and I picked up that Bible and I took it to my bedroom and I put it on the bed and I read it. And it made perfect sense to me. It gave me life. Paul says, when one turns to the Lord, he says the veil is removed. He says when the veil is removed, there is freedom to do what? To behold the glory of the Lord. And as we behold that glory now, it's still as reflected in a mirror. As we see the image of the living God, we are transformed into the same image. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now in John chapter 9, you know, there's kind of a strange incident there where Jesus is walking with his disciples and they pass a man that is blind from birth. And his disciples say, what happened to him? Did he sin or did his parents sin? And And Jesus said, no, it's so that the glory of God could be shown. And then Jesus stopped and he spit on the ground 
And he made mud with his saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and he said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So this man went, he washed, and he came back seeing. And so they asked him, the leaders asked him, how did this happen? He says, well, this guy put mud on my eyes and told me to go wash in the pool of Siloam. And I did, and I can see. Well, where is he? I don't know. And then they asked him, and again, he says, well, he put mud on my eyes and he made me see. And then they kept asking him. He finally told me, he says, I told you already. You wouldn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And then they continued to talk to him. He said, this is an amazing thing. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. And we both know God doesn't listen to sinners. But if a man is a worshiper of God, God will listen to him. And has it ever been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind? If this man wasn't from God, could he do anything? And they answered him and then they kicked him out of the synagogue. And Jesus came to him and he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? He said, and he says to Jesus, who is he, sir, that I can believe in him? Jesus says to him, you have seen him. And he's the one talking to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. It's as if that little bit of spittle and that little bit of dirt made the mud that God originally used to create man. And he made a new creation out of this man. Now, how do we come face to face with God? I'm not advertising for you to use mushrooms. We're talking about the ordinary means of grace. One is the preaching of the word. One is the table. One is baptism. One is the scriptures. You know, as you do these things, we do come face to face with God. But you can't completely saying that it can't also be experiential. There are times in our life that we know that God is here. And we may not be hearing voices or seeing him, but we know that he is here. And it is only in his presence that we are changed. And as I look at these people, 
God changed them. And how does that happen? By bringing them to him. But the same way for us, we go to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we pray, Father God, that you would make your gospel alive and real to us. For those that believe already, we pray that you would bring us into a closer relationship with you. For those of us here, Father, that may not believe, I pray, Father, that you'd remove the veil from their eyes that they might see you and believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.